You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Maximilian Alvarez. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and host of the podcast Working People. And this is the art of class war on Breaking Points. Last time I was in the Breaking Points studio, we talked about the unbearable heat conditions that UPS workers in packaged cars and warehouses have been enduring on the job. Part two of that segment, where we'll look more at um, heat as a workplace hazard impacting workers across many industries, is still coming. But we're pushing that back just a little bit more to bring you this special edition of The Art of Class War to talk about the crisis on the country's freight railroads as we count down to a potential national rail shutdown this Friday, September 16th. If you follow our work at The Real News Network, then you know that for the past eight months, journalist Mel Buer and I have been extensively covering the ways that corporate greed has wrecked the freight rail industry, the supply chain, and freight rail workers themselves. And, you know, Breaking Points is one of the few other outlets that have actually covered this story regularly. The stalled negotiations between the major rail carriers and the 12 different unions representing rail workers have been going on for over two years, officially reaching an impasse in late spring of this year. And, you know, the issues that workers have been raising the alarm about have been plaguing the industry for years, if not decades. And yet, it's been next to impossible to get media and political elites to pay attention And when they have paid attention, they almost never talk to the workers who make the railroads run about what they think. But now, finally, just days before we are poised to cross the final threshold to a rail strike initiated by the unions or a rail lockout initiated by the rail carriers, suddenly corporate media and DC politicians have decided to take an interest in this story. Now, things are moving very quickly. And you know, just this past weekend, for instance, ahead of the deadline for when lockouts can legally start, 
the rail carriers began what some describe as a soft lockout by notifying customers and shippers of immediate carrier-initiated slowdowns and embargoed freight. Meanwhile, the union leadership in 10 of the 12 railcraft unions have reportedly agreed to accept the recommendations of Biden's presidential emergency board as the new terms for a new contract. But the membership still needs to have their say and vote on it. Now, the two unions standing their ground and rejecting the Presidential Emergency Board, or PEB's, recommendations, which collectively represent close to 60,000 engineers and conductors and trainmen, are the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, Teamsters Rail Conference, or the BLET, and the Transportation Division of the Sheet Metal Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, or SMART-TD. In a joint statement released this Sunday, Jeremy Ferguson, president of Smart TD, and Dennis Pierce, president of the BLET, said about the embargo, quote, the railroads are using shippers, consumers, and the supply chain of our nation as pawns in an effort to get our unions to cave into their contract demands, knowing that our members would never accept them. Our unions will not cave into these scare tactics, and Congress must not cave into what can only be described as corporate terrorism, end quote. And on Monday, Republican Senators Richard Burr and Roger Wicker introduced a resolution, quote, to adopt the PEB recommendations to avert a rail strike, end quote. Now, it remains to be seen if Biden and the Democrats will have anything more than that to offer all these truly beaten down but fired up workers who say they are getting screwed, that the supply chain is getting screwed, and if they can't strike, that they have zero power to do anything about it. If a resolution is not reached between the unions and the rail carriers, 12 a.m. on Friday the 16th, could be the moment strikes or lockouts begin around the country. Now, Congress may force a contract down workers' throats and compel them back to work for fear of the seismic economic damage a shutdown would do. But will workers obey? To talk about all of this, I'm honored to be joined today by Michael Paul Lindsay, a locomotive engineer and a 17-year employee of Union Pacific in Pocatello, Idaho. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on Breaking Points. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, I'm, yeah, I really appreciate it, man. I know there is a lot going on, um, both in your work life and, you know, in the broader, uh, you know, crisis that the railroad industry is in right now. And so before we really sort of dig into the moment um, that we're at right now, approaching the threshold of a striker or a lockout, Let's start by quickly getting to know more about you. So I was wondering if you could tell folks a little bit about, you know, how long you've been working on the railroads, what kind of work that you do. And, you know, for those who are just now learning about the crisis that has led us to this point, talk about what your, you know, typical quote unquote work week looks like. Okay. Um, I've been uh, an employee of the railroad for about 17 years. I'm a locomotive engineer, so I work out of Pocatello, so I take trains from Pocatello to Green River, Wyoming, and also west to Napa, Idaho. 
And this usually these are trains going from Chicago to Portland, Chicago to Seattle, places like that. So um, I've worked around the country and other places as well, but that's been my primary home base for most of my career. Um, a typical work week for us, more like work in, in general, the, the whole year would be uh, being available for call. And you're available for call, and whenever your spot's up to be called, they call you. And it doesn't matter whether it's um, 6 in the morning or 1 a.m. or noon. It, it doesn't really matter. You get called. You take your call, and you go down there, and you form your assignment. You take your train over the road, or you work in the yard, or you work uh, a local. You, you don't really know day-to-day -day what you're doing exactly. Um, but usually when you go out of town... Uh, we're gone for up to 48 hours at a time. We'll take a train across and it might take 12. We might be on duty 12, 13, 14 hours by the time we actually um, get to the end of our shift and get relieved and get a van back to wherever we're going to be. And then we go to a hotel and then we're in a hotel for 16, 18, 20 hours, sometimes more. And then we take a train back the other direction. And uh, there's a lot of downtime uh, in between shifts where we're not getting compensated, which um, that's that's time that we're not getting compensated for. So that needs to be taken into account on our rate of pay. And then also there's a lot of away from home meal expenses because we're stuck away from town, eating, eating out, eating away from home. Uh, we don't have an alternative. And unfortunately, our meal allowances not have not gone up since 1993. So as an engineer for Union Pacific, I'm still making twelve dollars on my non-taxable meal allowance. Uh, meanwhile, the IRS says that $60 per day is the acceptable amount, and we're still making $12. And that goes into these uh, contract negotiations and how they did not uh, they, they did not address that in any way. That was not one of the things that were included in the contract. Right, and you know we're gonna um, talk a bit about um, you know the contract negotiations, such that they are, and um, you know the shortcomings of President Biden's presidential emergency board, which, as you alluded to, did not really address you know any of the quality of life and workplace safety issues that railroaders like yourself have been screaming about for you know many years. So we're going to talk about that, but. I want to kind of pick up on that sort of, you know, the, the the daily grind of it, right? What working in this sort of environment, being on call 24-7, having no sick days, right? Having no set schedule and, you know, having to having a workplace that move that literally moves and sometimes your you know rest time is being stuck out in a strip mall somewhere in a motel before you can hitch a ride back home. I want to kind of talk about that because that's where I first entered into this story when I reported for the Real News Network in January on the quote-unquote high-vis attendance policy at BNSF Railway, another one of the yes. Class 1 freight railroads. And I learned that workers, 17,000 of them, were prepared to strike over this attendance policy. I learned that a U.S. district court judge blocked workers from striking for fear of what it would do to the supply chain. And then I learned more about what this kind of attendance policy and these sorts of work practices that um, you know are really you know uh, uh, the the case across the industry, not just at BNSF, like what that says about 
how the industry has changed over the years. So I want to pick up on that. And, you know, since the 1980s, when, you know, there were over 30 class one railroads operating in this country, deregulation and corporate consolidation on the railroads has led us to the point that there are now just seven, right? And over that same time period, the railroad workforce, as you know, was slashed dramatically from over 500,000 employees in 1980 to less than 150,000 today. And I mean, you know, this is something I try to stress for folks that even before COVID-19, since 2015, the rail carriers collectively have laid off over 30% of their combined workforce, and now they're complaining about a labor shortage. So can you talk about what it's been like to work while all of this slashing has been going on around you? And what does this approach to staffing and the way that these companies generally treat workers like yourself, like what does that tell us about the larger system shift that has taken hold of the rail industry? Like, like why is this happening? Um, well, you mentioned deregulation and going back to the 80s and all. There was a time when the railroad industry was not profitable like it is now. They were, they were, they were in a hard time. Well, uh, several decades have passed the consolidations have occurred, the reductions in staffing and, and, and lines and abandonments of lines, everything has occurred. And now this industry is ultra, ultra profitable. And like you said, they've consolidated into seven systems. Two of those are Canadian railroads, actually. Um, the big four, Union Pacific, BNSF, CSX, Norfolk Southern, are the ones that, for the, um, for the most part, they're the ones that... Uh, we're talking about here and they work together and collude together like a big happy cartel. Um, these railroads are owned by the same people. They're uh, primarily controlled by the same institutional investors and they make the same choices and decisions. So the high-vis attendance policy has been the most publicized attendance policy, but make no mistake, all the railroads have these attendance policies. And, and what happened in the last few years is the railroads have implemented this uh, plan they, they call precision scheduled railroading. And, and that means very different things depending on who you ask. Um, but for the most part, it involves cutting crews, cutting maintenance, cutting locomotives, cutting terminals, slashing and burning the railroad in any way possible to reduce, to uh, get a lower operating ratio, to increase the dividends, to increase the share buybacks. And they have paid more to share buybacks over the last 15 years, every year consistently, than they have to capital improvements. In fact, they've essentially invested nothing into their railroad. They're, they're not investing in expansion. They're not investing in uh, electrification. They're not investing in anything that would be good for the economy or people or, or anyone else. They're investing or they're um, investing in their stock price growth and their dividend growth. And so part of that was to cut their crews. And so about five years ago, they started cutting dramatically, and our seniority has gone downhill. They furloughed a whole bunch of people that were hired on like 2016, 2017. They furloughed them for uh, two and a half years or so. And then when it finally came time, they realized, oh, we need these people. We, we need to bring these people back. 
None of them came back. Very, very few of them came back. I mean, it was like single-digit retention rates in a lot of parts of the country. And this was on all four of the big carriers. So no one really came back, and they realized, oh, we got a manpower shortage now. And it was self-inflicted. Of course, they were trying to blame COVID. It had nothing to do with COVID. Um, they've ju- and they've realized that they cannot hire people anymore because people realize what a terrible work-life balance you have or lack of any work-life balance that you have. And so since they can't get new employees, they impose these horrible attendance policies, which make it to where every time we take any sort of day off, we lose points. And in order to get any points back, you have to be available for an obscene amount of time. For us, in order to get any points back on UP, you have to be available for call or working uh, for 28 days straight to get any points back whatsoever. Um, I mean, that essentially, the way it's structured, means that you can get very, very few days off uh, per year, you know, especially if you... um, count days that are kind of unplanned, like a a sickness in the family, or you need to go to the dentist or anything. You you can't get days off. The only way to get days off is to take family medical leave. That's about the only way to get days off now. And uh, so the railroads have in unison been pushing these policies to keep us working. And uh, since the boards are short, since there's no people available to to move these trains, um, there have been times where you're literally gone for 36 or 48 hours out of town. You come home, you're home for 10 hours, then you're gone for 36, 48 hours again, then you're home for 10 hours, gone for 36, 48 hours again. And then, and then there's issues with locomotive shortages and um, every other sort of delay you can imagine related to basically the railroad's failure to adapt and be able to to move their trains. And because of that, you may think you're going to work and you're expecting, okay, I'm going to go to work. It looks like I'm going to go to work about, you know, one or two in the afternoon today. Um, You know, I'm waiting for a call. And you wait around the house all day for a call. And then something happens. They don't have locomotives for the train because they've been cutting their locomotives and cutting their maintenance staff. And and the train never actually goes. And then right about the time you're getting tired, about 9 or 10 o'clock at night is when they decide to call. And there's uh, no sort of ability to mark off when you're not rested. And like I said, you you accumulate points every time you take a day off. And eventually they, they, they threaten you with termination over taking basic days off. So well, and like you know, this is um, again like why um, you know looking at these attendance policies reveals right the much larger issue here, right? Because as as you uh-huh. mentioned, right there there is a serious problem, and I and I completely understand right now that folks who haven't been following this story are suddenly hearing that there could be a national rail strike or a rail lockout um, this Friday. They're worried about what that will do to the supply chain. They're worried about what that will do to costs at a time when inflation is already high. But what I would stress to folks um, to, to understand, right, is that the very greedy corporate 
practices, the profit-seeking, cost-cutting practices that we are describing here have already damaged the supply chain irreparably. Like this is what railroad workers like Michael have been telling me all year. And the proof is really in the pudding, as you mentioned. I mean, Surface Transportation Board Chairman Martin Oberman estimated that since 2010, Class 1 freight rail carriers have spent $46 billion more on stock buybacks and dividends than railroad maintenance, right? So that's a, that's a sizable difference. And what is that translated to, right? Shippers and customers are repeatedly complaining about poor quality of service, right? So quality of service, the amount of freight have all been going down for years at the same time that quality of life for workers on the railroad has also been going down at the same time that, you know, prices, profits, and stock buybacks have been skyrocketing, right? So this has been a slow building crisis and that folks are just now waking up to. And I think the thing that is, you know, really mind blowing is that, you know, we can't go through the whole process here, right? You know, but folks, you know, can, if they want to know more, they can, you know, watch our coverage at the Real News Network or here on Breaking Points to understand why we've had to clear so many hurdles to get to this point, right? Negotiations have stalled for two and a half years, officially declared at an impasse in late spring. President Biden appointed a presidential emergency board to try to broker an agreement. They released their recommendations in August. The rail carriers enthusiastically endorsed those recommendations. Rail workers, not so much. And, um, you know, it's because, as rail workers continuously say, the presidential emergency board does not address, it punted on every one of these workplace safety and um, quality of life issues that um, workers are talking about. But not only that, there was salt very much rubbed in the wound um, in this PEB report. And I will quote from the infamous page 32, where the Presidential Emergency Board wrote, and I quote, quote, the carriers, again, these are the companies that own the railroads, the carriers maintain that capital investment and risk are the reasons for their profits, not any contributions by labor. So, Michael, I wanted to, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time, but I wanted to ask you first, how did it make you feel reading that? And can you break down for folks, like, why the PEB fell so short of addressing the concerns that you and your fellow workers are uh, raising? Um, yeah, you got to love that quote. It's kind of become a meme around the railroad industry. You know, everyone knows that quote now. And it was really offensive, especially hearing that quote. And then looking just a couple pages earlier on page 28, where the PEB recommendations spoke about part of the ta- of the profitability increases in the railroads were caused by tax cuts the previous couple years. And I, you know, I just have to ask, so I'm, I'm not a Harvard MBA or anything, but were corporate tax cuts considered risk or were they investment since all their profits are made by risk or investment? I, I got to ask. <laughs> um, but the PEB recommendations fell so short because they literally just addressed uh, general pay increase and health insurance and that's it. So it, it addressed a general pay increase, which did not keep up with inflation but uh, it also removes the cap on our health insurance to make it to where we're going to be paying significantly more every month on our health insurance, which is going to erase any gains that we 
uh, game through a raise. Uh, in addition to the fact that the general rate wage increase itself um, did not actually keep up with inflation, even though the railroads are touting this as a record pay increase. Uh, the other thing it did not do is it uh, did not address the fact that we lost our ability to write off away from home meals. We used to be able to count up our days uh, that we were gone. And let's say you were gone 200 days away from home for the year, and the IRS allows $60 a day to be written off. That's a $12,000 deduction on your taxes. We lost that when the tax changes happened a few years ago. We basically lost our ability to itemize. And so that right there is costing us, on average on the road, at least six or $7,000 a year in real pay decrease because it's being taxed away from us. We're not getting reimbursed for our away from home meal expenses. Like I said, we still make $12 as engineers at UP. Um, another thing is it did not do anything to address the working conditions. The fact that we have zero uh, reliability on our, on our scheduling, uh, the fact that we have attendance policies preventing us from ever taking days off. None of this was addressed. The PEB basically punted all these issues back to mediation, back to negotiations, which the railroads and the unions have been negotiating for almost three years and they haven't been able to come to an agreement on any of this. So what makes you think that, that they're going to be able to reach an agreement now? And anyway, it's not going to happen. Right. Um, so that is the reason why the late, why we're threatening to strike is because they failed to address the issues that really matter to us, or which are not just purely financial. The railroads will try to say that we're just being uh, greedy and this is, uh, you know, wanting more money. That's not it at all. We literally want to take control of our life back. We want to be able to take care of our family and actually have a life again. And especially since the railroads have been so successful in being profitable and since railroad employees are the most productive employees the railroad has ever seen uh, now in the 150 years that the railroad industry has been around, 150 plus. I mean, you look at the length of our trains now and how we have locomotives on the front, middle and rear of the train on, on a lot of these trains and they're running them 12, 13, 14, even 15,000 feet long, or long, and we are controlling all the locomotives from the head end. We've uh, expanded our uh, ability to move freight dramatically, and we're not seeing any benefits from being more productive and doing an absolutely fantastic job at moving their freight, you know, moving these trains and, and learning how to actually successfully operate these trains over the road, which a 15,000-foot train would have been completely unheard of uh, just 20 years ago. It, it, it can't happen. There's too many limitations. But we do it now. We're right. getting no credit, and, no credit for it. Well, not only are you doing it, right, but you're doing it with, as you mentioned, like fewer people, right? Those, those shorter uh, trains mm -hmm. used to have like four or five-person crews, and the railroad carriers have been trying to get it down to one person, on running yes. those massive vehicles and, and, you know, the unions have been fighting tooth and nail to maintain two person crews. And again, when you have longer, heavier, more unwieldy trains, um, that are carrying hazardous materials, like this is really setting mm -hmm. us up for potential catastrophe. And that's what we mean when we say the supply chain is already at risk and people need to look at the reasons why. And, you know, man, we, we've got to wrap this up, but I mean, you've packed so much helpful information in there for folks. I know that things are happening quickly. We don't know what's going to happen here in DC. We don't know if Congress is 
is going to force people back to work. We don't know if workers are going to obey that order. We don't know if Congress is going to force a PEB-based um, contract down everyone's throats. A lot of There's a lot of fluidity to this situation right now, but I wanted to just round out by asking... Um, if you, you know, you, if you could say to folks out there watching and listening around the country and beyond, like, you know, what should they know ahead of Friday, you know, about what this, you know, dispute is really about and what can they do to show solidarity with you and your fellow railroad workers? Um, well, Congress is actively discussing, and they, they have announced that it is their intention to try to end our strike before it even begins. Um, and there, I guess there's a tentative bill out in the, the Senate right now. Um, so they are actively discussing doing that. Um, I think that everyone, all the people listening need to, if they want to be supportive here, try to contact their congressmen, their representatives, and remind them that in a country that's allegedly free and democratic, we absolutely cannot allow us to be forced back to work by law. You know, it's essentially a bailout again for these big railroad monopolies. And anyone that wants to advocate for better wages and work conditions for any industry that you're in, it doesn't matter whether you're in healthcare or education or retail or service, it, it, it will hurt all of you. It will hurt everyone if we set this precedent again that whenever there's a dispute, Congress will just force us back to work. And they need to know, too, that there is a mass exodus from the industry right now. And there are lots and lots of railroaders that are standing by and have actively stated that if they don't get a good contract, if, it, if we lose further ground, then they're just going to step away from the industry. And we're going to get the effect of a strike regardless as people just resign in greater numbers at the railroad. And they already have a hard time hiring people. So uh, Congress needs to think long and hard about that, too, before they force us back to work. People are ready to quit, and they are quitting. There have already been plenty of people that have quit uh, in response to the attendance policy and the work conditions. So, yeah, contact your representatives and let them know it's unacceptable to force laborers back to work by law and to allow railroads to have a cop-out in negotiating work conditions. So that is veteran railroad engineer Michael Paul. Lindsay, Michael, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today on Breaking Points, man. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. To all of you watching, thank you so much for watching this segment on Breaking Points. And be sure to subscribe to my news outlet, The Real News, with links in the description. See you soon for the next edition of The Art of Class War. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Solidarity forever. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. 
Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.